Welcome to Damn It, Jim, the podcast. My name is Dana Smith, and as always, I'm joined by Dan Calzaretta. Good evening, Dan. Hey, Dana. How are you doing this evening? Very good. Another lovely evening in Colorado. Temperatures have dropped out of the 90s, so you know, might see a little bit of cooling trend. And not that this is a weather podcast, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> There's no weather in space. Well, there actually is. You can, I think it's called spaceweather.com, and it talks about coronal mass ejections, which is a real thing. I think Spock had one once when he was kissing Uhura, but i um, not sure about that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Bach never kissed you, her, as far as I know. Well, in J.J. Uh, Abrams' universe. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, moving, moving on from space weather. Okay, tonight's episode is What Are Little Girls Made Of? And uh, this episode was written by Robert Block, who might be best known as the uh, novelist of the uh, story Psycho. Oh, I, I didn't know that. He wrote a few episodes for Star Trek. Before we get into what are little girls made of, I want to quickly discuss two things. One is last week's episode about Mud's women, and uh, the second, uh, the passing of Nichelle Nichols. We are going to set aside some time at the end of the podcast to discuss that. So, Dana, I can, <laughs> as we record this, we can see each other online, and I see your cat has just <laughs> walked in front of your microphone, and now it's giving me a shot of the cat rear end with the tail up. I'm not sure what that means about me or how it feels about our podcast. First, let's talk a little bit about Mud's Women, the uh, show we did last week. Had quite a varied response to that show. We had people that said, that's one of their favorite episodes. But a lot of people said they thought it was a bad episode, that it didn't fit. They thought it was just flaunting sex. Just kind of fascinated by how people responded to that. And also, the one thing, even people that, some of the people that didn't like the show said they did like Harry Mudd, one of their favorite characters in the show. I, and I said last week, I love Harry Mudd. I had some problems with the show. We both did. We talked about that. But as a character, I think he's great. He's a fascinating character. Now, did anyone comment about the discussion we had about the carpet? I didn't see any comments about the carpeting, uh, which is kind of shocking to me. Let's get into what are little girls made of. All right, let's do it. The Enterprise is orbiting planet XO3. We see Nurse Chapels on the bridge next to uh, Captain Kirk. We find out that XO3 is where Nurse Chapels' fiancé, Dr. Roger Corby, is supposed to be. They haven't heard from him in five years. We learn that the surface of XO3 is negative 100 degrees. They also mention that Dr. Corby is the pasteur of archaeological medicine. Kirk asks Spock if Corby could be alive on the planet. He doesn't answer. But we kind of get the idea that uh, it's not likely. Kirk mentions that two previous expeditions have failed to find Corby. All of a sudden, Uhura gets a transmission. It's Roger Corby. Corby says he survived due to underground ruins that he's discovered. Kirk says that a landing party will beam down and starts to mention chapel. But Corby quickly asks that Kirk only beam down. Spock gets up and comes over to Kirk's chair. And he says, that's an unusual request. When 
Spock asks Chapel if she's certain the voice is Roger Corby. She asks, she kind of gives him one of these, you know, exasperated looks and asks, Mr. Spock, have you ever been engaged? And then Chapel speaks and says, Roger, it's Christine. And he gets all excited. You could hear him say, yes, you know, Christine, by all means, you beam down as well. It's kind of funny because there's like crewmen in the background. They're all smiling, beaming, you know, just so happy for her. Kirk and Chapel beam down to the surface and uh, they're they're kind of in a cave and they can tell there's like a glass window behind them. Uh, and the outside world looks very cold and there's no sign of Corby. So uh, Kirk calls out for Corby. No one is there. Kirk calls up to the ship and asks for two security guards to come down. Rayburn and Matthews beam down. And I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but they're both in red shirts. I think we can see where this is going. <laughs> uh, yes, we can. Kirk says, you know, I want uh, Matthews to come and uh, Rayburn stay behind. And so the three of them move down the pathway, Chapel, Kirk, and Matthews. Chapel almost falls off a, a cliff. And then suddenly a bright light flashes at them, blinding them. And a figure steps front in front of the light, so he's silhouetted. Kirk draws his phaser. Matthews draws his phaser as well. And when he does, he looks at the phaser like, what am I, what am I pulling out of the phaser holster? Uh, uh, it was just a weird look. Dana, maybe he thought he was on an episode of a different show, like a <laughs> Western or some cop show. And he's like, whoa, what, what is this? This doesn't look like a gun. That could be. He was a uh, stuntman and had worked on other shows, including uh, another show that Gene Roddenberry had created before. Yeah. So maybe he just got confused. He forgot what episode he yeah. was in. So the person that stepped in front of the light is Dr. Brown. Uh, and that's Corby's assistant. He reaches over to the wall and flips a switch on the wall. And right when he does, we hear hear a scream. So they go running back to where that was. Kirk looks down and says, there a path down there? And Brown just says, no, it's no use. It's bottomless. Then we cut away to an ominous large figure, a giant with a bald head and huge shoulders sneaking away. Brown seems unaffected by Matthew's fall. Chapel looks at Brown and says, don't you recognize me? After a moment, Brown says uh, he does and calls her Christine. And then he tells Kirk that he is Corby's assistant, even though Chapel had already introduced him as such. Kirk looks over the edge again where Matthews had fallen and Brown says, he's dead. I assure you. Like, quit wasting your time. We've got things to do. Yeah, no emotion. Uh, so there's something odd going on. Of course, then we have also the hulking figure in the background right. uh, that Kirk and Chapel did not see. Corby, it's explained by Brown, discovered that the inhabitants moved underground as the planet became more cold. Brown gives Chapel and Kirk kind of the lowdown on all that Corby has figured out here on the planet. So they reach a room full of wooden furniture, very old, antique-like furniture. Then a woman walks in in a skimpy outfit. I hate to be stuck on interior design. <laughs> Go for it. This looks like something from the 17th century. It's like, where'd they get this from? Were they shooting, you know, a King Henry VIII movie down the hall and just stole <laughs> some of the furniture from there? Well, it kind of begs the question too. So you're in the 23rd century, you're moving to another planet to do some type of archaeological medicine work. What do you bring with you? I mean, these starships are huge, right? They could bring anything yeah. they wanted. They could bring a nice dinette set, but they're, they're bringing along, yeah, this kind of 
of bad furniture. As I mentioned, they reach this room and this woman walks in in a uh, crisscrossing outfit. And uh, by that, I mean, it kind of wraps around her neck, goes across her chest in a crisscross fashion. And she's beautiful. And right away, Chapel looks concerned. Yeah, uh, well, for good reason, because her fiance <laughs> is hanging out with this chick who's wearing clothing that easily could fall off and would be very yeah, revealing. You know, no doubt she's thinking that maybe this is why we haven't heard from Roger in five years. So. Exactly right. <laughs> Andrea is the woman that enters the room. She introduces herself. Chapel says, I don't remember Roger mentioning an Andrea. And then they ask where Corby is. And all of a sudden he comes in through another door. Oh, and the doors also have the uh, the sliding mechanism that goes shh, shh. So again, they've got these fancy doors. They've existed on this planet for five years. Where'd the wood come from to begin with? You know, <laughs> the furniture. I'm sorry, I'm stuck on the furniture, but. It's carpeting, it's furniture. Maybe we should be doing a show about interior decorating and not Star Trek. <laughs> I'd love to see the comments we get on that. He sees Chapel and goes right to her. He kisses her very passionately. Kirk tries to call Rayburn, who's back at the cave entrance. He's the other security officer. In the red shirt. Yep. And uh, he gets no answer. And he had left orders with Rayburn that if he didn't hear from him in an hour that uh, they were supposed to call more security detail down. Kirk says, I've got to call the ship. Corby uh, doesn't want him to do that. And uh, neither does Brown. All of a sudden, Brown steps aside and pulls out a phaser and says, you can't call your ship. Kirk's like, you know, what? why? Corby says, we've got some things here that, you know, it's just better if you and Chapel or Christine, as he calls her, sees it. And he says, we're just not ready for everybody else yet. He tells Andrea, kind of sends her over to Kirk to disarm him. And Kirk has like one of these small handheld phasers, looks a little bit like a modern remote control. When she comes over, she goes to take it out of his hand and Kirk grabs her and twists her around. He gets near the door and he kind of pushes her aside he kind of does a dive and a roll and it was it was a little awkward. The clothing that Andrea was wearing, I'm actually surprised they didn't have a wardrobe malfunction because the yeah. way he grabbed her and as skimpy as that thing was, easily we could have had some Janet Jackson event <laughs> happening. So Kirk comes up, Brown raises his phaser as if to shoot and Kirk zaps him. Right away after that, this goon that we saw before suddenly comes through the, the sliding door, grabs Kirk and lifts him up in the air, pins him against the wall. I mean, and he lifted him like he was nothing. Ted Cassidy, who was playing this character, uh, lifted him, made me think he was a pretty strong guy. And then Chapel looks over at Brown and we see there's a hole in Brown's stomach and out of it is like wires and electronic gear. We learn that Brown is an android. Well, an ex-android because he's <laughs> been terminated. Kirk, while he's pinned to the wall, three feet over Ruck's head. He's kind of more astonished by the hole in Brown's stomach than he is by this giant. Now, we should say for the listeners, they may have seen this character. Ruck is his name in the show, but they may recognize him from the Adams family, right? Yeah. Ted Cassidy played Lurch on the Adams family. Back on the ship, Uhura says she's receiving a message from Captain Kirk. We go back to the planet and we see that Ruck is imitating Kirk's voice perfectly. Spock asks if everything's okay, says you sound tired. Ruck, again as Kirk, responds. Dr. Corby has made some fascinating discoveries, all under control. Stand by for regular contact. Kirk out. 
to kind of impress Kirk or show him how talented Ruck is, he has him do a few other impersonations, including Christine Chapel. Corby gets a little bit concerned and says, you must not harm Christine ever in any way. And Kirk adds in, or disobey her orders. Corby uh, tells Kirk he, that Kirk's not a prisoner, but he just needs 24 hours to show him what he has found and accomplished. Kirk asks where his crewmen are. Corby says that Ruck has been programmed to protect him and his work. Where is my other crewman? Ruck was programmed to protect my experiments. The logic of his machine mind saw danger to me. Where is my other crewman? Ruck destroyed them both. Totally against my wishes, I assure you. Kirk asks if Ruck is an android like Brown. Then Ruck answers, More complex than Brown. Much superior. I was left here by the old ones and was manning the machinery when Corby found him years ago. I like that term, the old ones. I, I think it's kind of a cool way to describe the previous race that was on that planet. So Kirk tries to make a run for it. Ruck grabs him again, lifts him in the air, and tosses him back in the room. We go down a different doorway where Andreas uh, comes in, and we see Chapel is in the room alone. Chapel looks Andrea over again, doesn't seem pleased. Andrea says, I do not understand why you're unhappy. Chapel Chapel asks, where's Kirk? Andrea asks, how can you love Roger if you don't trust him? Before Chapel can answer, Corby says behind her, the fact that it does bother her is enough. You will call me Dr. Corby from now on instead of Roger. Corby needs time to explain and demonstrate what he has found. He says, let's start with Andrea. Chapel says, yes, let's start with Andrea. <laughs> and I got this feeling that she was like, let's start with that B-I-T-C-H Andrea. <laughs> it was... She was not happy that she was there at all. Andrea steps around them and gets over in front of Kirk. And she says, I'm like Dr. Brown. I'm an android. We see Chapel checking her out again. Corby talks about how remarkable she is. She has a pulse. She has lifelike skin tone, physical sensation. Chapel says, how convenient. As Corby was describing Andrea, I was thinking about androids today that are being produced now. Very lifelike, human type skin, eye movements, muscle movements. Yeah. And and, and with the implication that there's a an affair going on between a human and an android. And that's a whole nother subsection of androids that are being produced these days. That's really what got the android movement going. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> the android movement, the internet. I mean, it's got to start somewhere, Dana. Very true. Corby goes back to Chapel and says, uh, she's just like a computer. Do you think I could love a machine? And Chapel asks, did you? And he says, Andrea is incapable of that. Then he says, go over to Kirk. Andrea goes over to, in front of Kirk, says, kiss Captain Kirk. She kisses him and seems completely unaffected. And then he tells her to strike him. So she slaps Kirk. He says, there's no emotion, no emotional involvement. She just responds to orders like a computer. Chapel doesn't seem completely convinced at this point. No, in fact, I think you'd be less convinced because if she'll do anything that Corby says, who knows what's been going on. I'm sure somewhere Corby's got a list of things for Andrea to do. And Chapel's just wondering where that list is because that will be the proof that she needs. So Kirk asks, if they only respond to orders, then why did Brown try to shoot me? Why did Ruck kill two of my men? Corby says, well, let me show you now. 
So then we cut to a human blob of clay that's being set onto this table. It seems like it doesn't have full legs. It's like it's cut off at the knees, uh, but it has a head and a torso and arms. But very ill-formed, right? I mean, it almost looked like the type of clay structure I would do if I were told to, hey, make a human out of this clay. It would look exactly like that. They put it on this table. Corby enters the room with Chapel. They look at the table and there's two sides to it. There's a blob of clay on one side and Captain Kirk on the other side, and he is, for all intents and purposes, buck naked. Yeah, he is completely naked with this kind of strap or metal band across his midsection so that, you know, Chapel wouldn't be embarrassed, I assume. I think it was to hold him onto the table. You know, well, there's that the too, table. probably, Dana, but you know. Because <laughs> as we find out in a second, the table starts turning. Now, I have to admit, <laughs> when the table was spinning, I did pause it to kind of see if you could see underneath that, you know, I didn't know if there were any giblets kind of hanging out or what, but I, you know, I thought it was important to, to know, was he really naked? Shatner was kind of a method actor. Maybe he felt like, hey, if Kirk's going to be naked, I got to be naked. Good point. Now, I have to say that you really couldn't see much underneath there. So, not sure what that says about William Shatner, but but I couldn't really I'm, see anything. I'm not sure what this says about you. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I was just curious, Dana. So, the, the table starts turning faster and faster, but now on the other side of the table, and there is a divider between these two forms, is a human figure. Then when it stops, Kurt turns over and looks at Chapel and says, Hello, Nurse Chapel. Corby says, Choose, Christine. Which is your captain? I don't know. Except, I honestly don't know. Corby says, you know, this is only part of the process to duplicate the mental pattern. They have to do another step. Kirk overhears this and repeats to himself. Mind your own business, Mrs. Buck. I'm safe your half-breed interference, do you hear? And he says that two or three times. Corby throws the switch and Kirk looks to be in pain for a moment. And then the table spins around to the other side and the android turns and says, how do you do, Miss Chapel? Now we've got two Kirks again. We cut to uh, the dining area. Again, old wooden table that uh, Chapel's sitting at. Andrea's getting some food for uh, Chapel. She sits down to eat and Kirk comes in, fully dressed. Chapel assures Kirk that Corby is sane. Kirk asks if he gave her an order to betray him, could she? And she says, don't ask me to do that. She says, it would just be too difficult for her to do. Chapel sighs and pushes away her multicolored food that she has and says she can't eat. She looks at Kirk and says, go ahead and eat. Kirk pushes his plate aside and says, androids don't eat. Now we know who she's been talking to. By the way, I couldn't eat that food either. It was these multicolored square chunks of something. It looked like yeah. uh, when my dog ate some food, human food, and then puked it up. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> what it looked like to me. The real Captain Kirk enters with Corby behind him. Now Kirk has on one of these blue and green jumpsuits. He sits down at the table and says he's hungry, takes some food and starts to eat. Captain Kirk starts questioning his uh, doppelganger, asks about his brother. What's my brother's name? And he says, uh, George Samuel Kirk. Kirk says, you know, that's pretty impressive. So this is actually the first time in any of the episodes that we hear that Kirk has a brother. This comes to play in Strange New Worlds. Yeah, his brother appears in Strange New Worlds, but it also appears in another episode. We see Sam Kirk oh, that's in uh, right. the original series. Yep, I forgot about that. That's right. So Corby excuses the android Kirk, and he sits down next to Kirk and says, Do you see what I can accomplish? Human beings can have an immortality. Can you understand what I'm offering mankind? Programming. Different word. But the same old promises made by Genghis Khan. 
Julius Caesar, Hitler, Ferris, Maltuvas. Corby says life would be improved if we could do away with jealousy and hate. Kirk responds, you're doing away with love and tenderness. Sentiment. Corby says, only joy, no disease. Corby says, I just need your help. As Corby's talking, Kirk is undoing a rope that's on this chair. And uh, basically, Corby wants to take a show on the road and produce androids all across the galaxy. And then Kirk jumps up and wraps the rope around Corby's neck. Ruck starts to advance, but can't get to Kirk around Corby. Kirk says, I'll kill him. And he backs way toward the door again. And then he pushes Corby into the room and runs away. Ruck starts to uh, chase Kirk, but then he goes to Corby and makes sure he's okay. So we see that there's like some kind of sentiment there between Ruck and Corby. Corby says, Ruck, protect, and Ruck runs after Kirk. A moment later, Chapel comes out and runs after Ruck. So Kirk's running through and he gets to a spot where he knows he's going to have to fight. And so he sees a stalactite, pulls it out of the ceiling. Okay, hold on a second. Hold on. (laughs) Hold on. If our listeners have not seen this show, all they need to do is Google Kirk stalactite and this picture will come up. (laughs) When I was watching this episode, I I stopped it, screenshotted it, and sent it immediately to you. And I was like, (laughs) what does this look like? Now, I want to try to be as, what's the word, Dana? Careful. (laughs) Thank you. I want to try to be as careful as possible. But this thing that he pulled off, first off, that you could just break it off. I mean, maybe you could, and it wouldn't crumble. I don't know. Two things happened. One, it was a enormous phallic looking object. And the way he was holding it, some might even say he was cradling it. It was a big stalactite. It was was huge. And what color was it, Dana? Kind of pink. (laughs) Kind of flesh toned in a way. So, yeah. How could they? not have known this. Now, <laughs> the prop guy must have been like, look, there is no way they're going to go for this. So I'm just going to do it as a joke. I'm going to do this as a joke. They're going to see it. They're going to ask me to, hey, oh, come on now. Let's fix that. Let's not do that. I don't know what happened that night. Like they were filming late. They were tired. They want to go home. But this thing was enormous. Well, Kirk grabbed it thinking he could hurt Ruck with it. <laughs> <laughs> What's he going to do? Hit him in the face? <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Look, if they <laughs> It's not our fault that they designed this in that way. We are just commenting on what we saw. We're just observing. We're just making observations. There is no way you could look at that and not come to the same conclusion that we came to. <laughs> oh, I'm crying. Ruck as we have learned before, can impersonate different people. And he impersonates Chapel, calls out for uh, Captain Kirk. Ruck doesn't get an immediate response, so he starts to walk away. Kirk says, Christine, is that you? So Ruck comes around, Kirk readies the stalactite, and uh, Ruck basically knocks... (laughs) Oh my God. We'll get through this, Dana. We'll get through it. (laughs) Ruck knocks Kirk back, and we see Kirk has gone over the edge. He's clinging to a little bit of rock. Ruck comes up, and then he reaches down and grabs Kirk's hand and pulls him up. We cut back to the ship, and we see Kirk walk quickly by Spock, who is making some notes on a pad while someone else is up in one of the Jeffries tubes. Spock follows Kirk to his quarters. Kirk says, we have to prepare for bringing up Kirby's equipment and supplies, and that they'll have to make a adjustments to their schedule. Spock asks a question and Kirk repeats 
repeats that line that uh, he had said on the table. Mind your own business, Mr. Spock. I'm sick of your half-breed interference. Do you hear? Spock kind of pulls back, takes, seems to take note of this. And then Kirk starts towards the door and then he turns and it's like, is everything okay? He didn't even so, understand how horrible what he had just said to Spock was. Spock says, everything is fine. And then we follow Kirk down the hall. Spock then calls security and says, have security meet me in the transporter room after the captain has beamed down. Back on XO3, Kirk is lying on a wooden bed and then Andrea walks in. He grabs her and she tries to get away and he says, kiss me. So she does. It's the same kind of kiss as before. And then right away, she goes to slap him. He grabs her again and then he kisses her. Yeah, it looked like uh, he was trying to digest her entire face. <laughs> when they pulled back, uh, Andrea's seems a little flustered. And uh, and then she says, no, not programmed for you. She said, I'm so, programmed for the stalactite. <laughs> Corby's stalactite. <laughs> Andrea leaves, and when Kirk tries to follow, Ruck comes through the door and pushes him back into the room. Kirk asks Ruck what happened to the old ones. Ruck says they started to fear the androids and began to turn them off. Ruck says it became necessary to destroy the old ones. Kirk argues that they will reach the same thing with Corby, that Corby will have to destroy them. And then Ruck is almost emotional when he says... <laughs> was the equation. <gasps> Existence! Survival must cancel out programming. Just then, Corby enters and Ruck turns on him. Ruck says that Corby brought the evil on them by bringing Kirk and Chapel down. Corby uses the phaser and no more Ruck. Corby gets Kirk and they go down the hall. When they enter another room, Kirk pushes Corby back against the closing door. And when Corby pulls his hand out of the door, we see his hand is damaged. There's like a big flap of skin hanging off. And then we get a closer look and we see that he too is an android. Yeah, which was shocking, right? I mean, for us as the watchers of the show, and certainly shocking to Christine Chapel. Corby tries to tell Chapel it's still him. Just then an alarm goes off that someone else has entered the caves. Kirk says to Chapel that Spock must have gotten his message. Corby tells Andrea to protect. And then Andrea goes out and sees the android Kirk. She stops and says, I will kiss you. Android Kirk says, no. She seems confused. And when Android Kirk says, it is illogical and starts to walk past, she just shoots him with the phaser. I know. So, <laughs> so. When you saw this, was it your understanding that she thought that Android Kirk was real Kirk? Yes. Yeah. I thought the exact same thing, but I got a problem with that. Here's what the problem is. He is now dressed in the gold commander top where the real Kirk had that jumpsuit on that was was given to him by Corby. Don't yep. you think she would remember what the real Kirk was wearing and what the android Kirk was wearing? I mean, she's a machine. She's a computer. How could she not know, recognize that? So. It just didn't make much sense to me. It almost seemed like the writers were like, oh, we got to wrap this up. So she walks off into another room and comes upon Corby, Kirk, and Chapel. She sees Kirk and tries to tell Corby that she killed Kirk, but then realizes she killed the android. Kirk argues that this is not the perfect world Corby has 
has been promising. Corby acts like a computer in his responses. Kirk says, is there anything human left in you? Corby starts saying, I can calculate. I can compute. I can figure out. I can, you know, basically saying he's like an adding machine. He pauses after he says each of those things, almost like he's realizing it as he's saying it. Yeah, that holy crap, I'm an android. Yep, exactly right. Yeah. Kirk says, hand over the phaser and slowly Corby does. Kirk turns to Andrea and asks for her phaser and she says she can't. She turns towards Corby and says to love, to kiss you. Corby says you're not human. Andrea leans into him to kiss him and as she does, the phaser goes off and kills them both. So did she pull the trigger? I thought she did, but I was reading online that somebody said you can see Corby reaches up and pulls the trigger. But either way, whether it was her that pulled the trigger or Corby, it begs the question, why? Yeah, I kind of wondered the same thing. The only thing I could think of was that Corby was still part human and didn't like what he'd become. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Mr. Spock shows up and asks if they're okay, and then he looks around and says, where's Dr. Corby? Kirk walks away and says, Dr. Corby was never here. I think it was a great line, by the way. Great line. Yeah, I agree. Then we go back to the Enterprise. Kirk and Chapel are talking. Spock comes down by the captain's chair and Kirk notices Spock's got kind of a strange look on his face and he asks if something's wrong. Frankly, I was rather dismayed by your use of the term half-breed. You must admit, it is an unsophisticated expression. I'll remember that, Mr. Spock. The next time I find myself in a similar situation. So, Dan, what'd you think? I like this episode. I, I don't think it's by any means the strongest in the first season. However, there are some pretty monumental things that happen in this episode, including the first red shirt that dies. What about you? What did you think of this episode? I like it. You know, there's some fun things in there. I thought they did a good job of mixing in Nurse Chapel. Uh, this is the only episode where she is prominently featured. One of the best parts for me, Dana, was the stalactite. I mean, I thought it was hilarious. As I said earlier, I took a screenshot, sent it to you immediately, and then I went and showed it to my wife. And I was like, what's uh, Captain Kirk holding here? She looked at it and she just like <laughs> shakes her head and walks away. That was one of the best parts for me. What about for you? The the split screen for the two Kirks at the table. I had mentioned Ruck. And of course, the uh, costume that Andrea wore. I'd say one of the other best parts for me was we get to see the first red shirt die. And in fact, the first two. How about the worst for you? There was no McCoy, no Sulu, and worse yet, no Scotty. So, Dan, what do you think the theme of this show was? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the theme of this show is one that we're going to see over and over again in Star Trek, and that is, what does it mean to be human? Well, I was thinking the same thing. There's that whole aspect there of what makes us human. Well, I have a question for you. If your consciousness could be transferred into an android, like everything, and you would be given immortality, would you do it? Wow. Off the top of my head, I'd say no. Yeah, I I don't think we're meant to live forever. What about you? Maybe that's the most important question. Would our family members, would our loved ones, would they be able to do this as well? Or would we have to go through life, the rest of our lives without them? If the answer was no, they wouldn't, then I don't know. I don't think I would do it. Could we do this podcast for eternity? Our listeners right now are just hoping we'd stop now. (laughs) (laughs) It's feeling like eternity to them. 
Okay, let's uh, let's get to our uh, counts. Yeah, the counts. So this is an exciting, exciting week, Dana. This week, the dead crewman count. We have how many this week, Dana? Two. And what was special about them? They were both wearing the red shirts. That's it. So we had two die this week. We're up to now a total of 19. Okay, what's the other count that we're doing? The shirtless Kirk, ripped shirt Kirk count. This week, we see how many, Dana? One. Yeah. Well, two, actually. Yeah. I know. So that's the question. Here's another <laughs> philosophical question that we need to deal with. Do we count the android? I've got another philosophical question. Kirk's not wearing pants in this. Do we start a, uh, <laughs> a, a new category of the bottomless Kirk? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Shirtless it, and pantless, Kirk? I don't know. It may just get to be too complicated at that point. <laughs> um, I can make a note. I'll make a note. I would still count them as one. Yeah, I agree. All right. So this week we've got one for a total of five out of the seven episodes. <laughs> We're going to do, I think, a little special thing right now, Dana. We need to talk about Nichelle Nichols, don't we? So Nichelle Nichols played Uhura. She died this week at the age of 89, I believe. And she had a long career, didn't she, Dana? You want to talk a little bit about like how she even got into show business? She always wanted to be a dancer, an actor. Uh, she was always interested in the arts and uh, she wanted to be a singer. When she was in her teens, she uh, got hired by Duke Ellington to be a singer and dancer in his band. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, and, isn't it? Uh, some people listening to this might not understand what the big deal was, but at the time when a uh, African-American person was in a TV show, they were usually a cook, a maid, a criminal. Yeah, or, or just know, a caricature, so, not even a yeah. real human being, really. And so now we have this person who's not only a real person, but she's a lieutenant on a starship. And she's equal to everyone around her. Yep. And in fact, she tells this story, and it's a quite famous story, about how in that first season, she was thinking about leaving the show. She was offered a role in a Broadway play. She loved being in live theater. And so she went in to talk to Gene Roddenberry, and this was on a Friday. And he said, I'll take the resignation. I'm just going to put it at my desk, but I want you to go and just think about it. So that night, she happened to be a celebrity guest at an NAACP fundraiser. She was sitting there uh, on the stage before the proceedings got started and the organizer of the event came over to her and said there was a fan, a huge Star Trek fan that wanted to talk to her and meet her. And she said, that'd be great. Dr. Martin Luther King, my leader, is walking toward me, not 10 feet away, with a beautiful smile on his face. And then this man says, I am your best fan, your greatest fan. And then I got the courage to say, and I really am going to miss my co-stars. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm leaving Star Trek. He's, he said, you cannot. For the first time on television, we will be seen as we should be seen every day, as intelligent, quality, beautiful people who can sing, dance, and, but who can go into space. And he said, Gene Roddenberry has opened a door for the world to see us. If you leave, that door can be closed because you see your role is not a black role and it's not a female role. He can fill it with anything, including an alien. And at that moment, the world tilted for me. The world sees us for the first time as we shall, should be seen. 
Okay, Dana, what did you think about that audio clip? I thought it was fascinating to hear uh, Nichelle Nichols directly talk about it. I've heard the story, I've read about it, but to actually hear her and hear the excitement in her voice when she talks about Dr. King walking towards her and talking to her, and then the kind of astonishment that she was a huge role model. Another actor who shows up in Star Trek The Next Generation, Whoopi Goldberg, as a child, was watching the original series. And Whoopi Goldberg tells a story about about how the first time she saw Uhura, she called out for her mom and said, Mom, Mom, look, there's someone who looks like us on the show who's not a maid. And that goes exactly to your point. A lot of black characters were really just these caricatures and not reflecting real human beings. Props to Gene Roddenberry and the producers for casting her, but bigger props go to her for being such a great character in the show. I can't imagine Star Trek without her. Yeah. That, that's a great point. After uh, she met Dr. King that night, uh, that following Monday, she went into Gene Roddenberry's office and told him that she had met Dr. King. And he had said, look, you can't quit the show. And so she decided not to leave. And she was also, because of the show, the first African-American to uh, have her handprints in front of the Chinese theater, the Hollywood Chinese theater, with the rest of the cast from Star Trek. And it's crazy to think, 1966, all the actors that have come and gone, and she's the first African-American. American to put her hands in the cement outside of the uh, Chinese theater in Hollywood. Yeah, that that is pretty amazing. And then she also later in life goes on to work with NASA and do some recruiting for NASA. And in fact, helped recruit the first female astronaut and helped recruit the first African-American astronaut as well. She was able to use this experience from Star Trek, her fame from Star Trek to actually do a lot of good things, not just to rest on her laurels, but she actually made societal changes. It was really important for her. I did find a quote from her. She said that Star Trek represented and still does represent the future we can have, a future that is beyond the petty squabbles we are dealing with here on Earth. Now, as much as ever, we are able to devote ourselves to the betterment of all humankind by doing what we do so well, explore. This kind of future isn't impossible, and we need to rethink our priorities to really bring that vision to life. That shows an intelligence and ability to to think beyond today, not just because of the show, but actually about society. If we could all live by those words, we'd be much better off today. Thank you, Nichelle. Yeah, thank you, Nichelle. Uh, Before we go, did we hear from any of our listeners? Quite a few, actually. Got Bob out in Chicago has commented that thinks we're doing a great job. Uh, Michelle, also uh, in the Chicago area, commented that she's really enjoying the show and and learning a lot about it. Had other comments that were funny. And I also heard from a woman here in Walla Walla who said that her brother on the west side of the state is obsessed with our show and can't wait to hear it every Friday. You know, it's nice that they let prisoners have a radio every night. To work with. <laughs> All right, Dana. <laughs> I had a great time. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks once again for listening to Damn It, Jim, the podcast. We'd love for you to join us next week for the episode Miri. We'd also love to hear from you. Please email us at dammitjimpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can join the discussion on Facebook or Twitter. For Dan and Dana, until next week, live long and prosper. Prosper.